Hello. Welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack Barnell. You can find me around the web as the Emotional Orphan. I'm the co-founder and the co-host of the Social Yet Distance podcast, and I want to take a minute to thank you for coming by. Greetings and welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack and today we've got a great show with Ryan Quinn Flanagan. And we're going to go ahead and get the boring everybody hates bio stuff out of the way and we'll come back and talk to Ryan in just a few minutes. Ryan Quinn Flanagan is a Canadian born author residing in Elliott Lake, Ontario, Canada with his wife and many mounds of snow. His work can be found in both print and online in such places as Evergreen Review Punk Noir Magazine, The New York Quarterly, Cultural Weekly, Gutter Eloquence, The Dope Fiend Daily, and Rye Whiskey Review. He's a Canadian-based writer, published in print online. Um, he is the author of 26 collections of poetry, including three chapbooks and four collaborations, and twice has been nominated for Pushcart Prize, and he's a Best of the Net finalist. Originally born in Barrie, Ontario, he moved to Kingston at the age of 23 to attend Queen's University, and he holds both a BA and an MA in history with an English minor. Presently, his time is devoted to writing as often as he can, and as well as doing other day-to-day things that people do in order to pay the bills. Um, He particularly has an affinity for dragonflies, discount tequila, and all things sarcastic. We want to thank you for being here today, and we'll talk to Ryan in just a few minutes. Thanks. Ryan Quinn Flanagan. He cleared his throat with bulldozers. He cleared his throat with bulldozers, had the necessary work permit from the city taped to the side of his face. Removing dirt from the windpipe, he found trapped miners that had died down there, their once blackened faces, now skeletal, huddled together like an American football team discussing a play that never happened. But lest you think my mud brains hung up on simple excavation, there's still the clouded mind to address, always clouded, with a thick haze of grievous confusion, the benchmark of basic clarity never met, sitting in dark cafes with stupid French names, folding the newspapers like losing a hand of poker. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. I'll do anything for you.
Brian Quinn Flanagan. He cleared his throat with bulldozers. He cleared his throat with bulldozers, had the necessary work permit from the city taped to the side of his face. Removing dirt from the windpipe, he found trapped miners that had died down there, their once blackened faces, now skeletal, huddled together like an American football team discussing a play that never happened. But lest you think my mud brains hung up on simple excavation, there's still the clouded mind to address, always clouded, with a thick haze of grievous confusion, the benchmark of basic clarity never met, sitting in dark cafes with stupid French names, folding the newspapers like losing a hand of poker. Greetings and welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack and today we've got a great show with Ryan Quinn Flanagan. And we're going to go ahead and get the boring everybody hates bio stuff out of the way and we'll come back and talk to Ryan in just a few minutes. Ryan Quinn Flanagan is a Canadian born author residing in Elliott Lake, Ontario, Canada with his wife and many mounds of snow. His work can be found in both print and online in such places as Evergreen Review, Punk Noir Magazine, The New York Quarterly, Cultural Weekly, Gutter Eloquence, The Dope Fiend Daily, and Rye Whiskey Review. He's Canadian-based writer, published in print online. Um, he is the author of 26 collections of poetry, including three chapbooks and four collaborations, and twice has been nominated for Pushcart Prize, and he's a Best of the Net finalist. Originally born in Barrie, Ontario, he moved to Kingston at the age of 23 to attend Queen's University, and he holds both a BA and an MA in history with an English minor. Presently, his time is devoted to writing as often as he can, and as well as doing other day-to-day things that people do in order to pay the bills. Um, He particularly has an affinity for dragonflies, discount tequila, and all things sarcastic. We want to thank you for being here today, and we'll talk to Ryan in just a few minutes. Thanks. All right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Social Yet Distance podcast. My name is Jack, and today we've got a really special event. Um, my compadre Fran in the UK is here with us, and we're going to talk today with Ryan Quinn Flanagan about his newest book and his history and writing and all, all kind of interesting topics for discussion. So let me say hello, Fran. Good to see you. I hope you're well. Oi, oi. And, How are you doing? And Manny the dog is all better and everything's good there. So that's good news. Yeah, you'll Hi. probably hear How him. You, my friend? It's a pleasure to see you. You too. <laughs> yeah. Manny will probably join in at some point. We'll probably have an extemporized kind he, of like. He knows he's welcome. Yeah. And Ryan Flanagan, <laughs> how are you, my friends? Good to see you. Let's talk books and poems and whatever. You want to just, right. um, you want to jump right in and give us something uh, go ahead and read us something. Give us a little introduction into who Ryan Quinn Flanagan is. Read yeah, us sure, of course. Yeah, um, I'll start off. I'll, I'll read a few from uh, a chat book I did called uh, Night Spotting uh, with uh, Tom Bakeless. It's uh, Between Tom. Shadows Press out of New Jersey. Good old Tom. Yeah, he's a good guy. And uh, Tom, yeah. if you're listening, you owe me, dude. Come on, call me, bud. It's your turn. 
<laughs> Quit working so hard. Come, come hang out. And, uh, the, the fr- <laughs> All right, brother, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, the first uh, poem is the title poem, Night Spotting. It is not far. It is not too far. I could almost see it sitting here like a paperweight. Imagine it with a brain only too willing to magnolia paint a picture. Folds, functions, neurons firing. Scared fireworks to keep matted dogs scurrying under bed. Old glass panes that no longer hold their heat. I come close. I have come close. I can certainly feel something standing here in the reverb, a boneless, skinless squall that leaps and churns and gallivants. I have sailed by so often that strangers will name ships after me. Yes. You do, you do your last lines like me, man. They always kind of leave you hanging a little bit and thinking. I like that a lot. On the lines, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this one's... Uh, Funnier piece, I guess, it's called uh, Sloppy Jalopy. (laughs) He would never admit that he drove around all night looking for the right one, that he pulled up to the curb and chatted the girls up, his wedding band tucked into his sock like a pro, that he met this latest one outside an impound lot. I started calling her Sloppy Jalopy just to piss him off, insinuating that he may have had too much to drink, that sloppy jalopy may have been a tranny, had an Adam's apple large as the sun. He got very angry, started defending her as though she were his wife, not that he had any problems with, quote, those people. I laughed and poured another drink, asked about his missing wedding band. He seemed to be losing on many fronts. Shit, he said, taking the thing back out of his sock and putting it on his finger. I could see the panic on his face, like this wasn't the first time. I'd hate to be your wife, I said. I'd hate to be your husband, he responded. He had me there. No one would want to be my husband, not even Sloppy Jalopy, the best blowy in the entire impound yard. I hope you don't plan to sell her for scrap, I prodded. He knew exactly who I was talking about, as though I had been right there in the car with them the entire time. How he drove to the place she suggested, the money up front, and then down to business. <laughs> yeah, man. It's like short bursts of detail to me, mm-hmm. the, the way yeah. your stuff reads. And, you know, I, I tend to do a little research. I mean, you and I, I've kind of followed you around the web, and we've been seeing each other around for years. And, you know, I, I, I just never dug in and bought a book or, you know, pursued your trail and and in doing the research I've just blown away I mean I know people who are extremely prolific like Fran for example and even the amount of work that you put out and made available in the public just blew me away I had no idea and and then I looked at at not only the books but just the submissions and the different places where you've been published and the quality of those locations since, I mean, like 2010, just stellar magazines or rags or journals or whatever you want to call them, whatever they are, just one behind the other. And 
And that's just amazing to me. So the question really I'm, I'm looking for here is, um, you know, how does that arc happen for you? Because I know the amount of work that's required to get to that level of visibility within a community that appreciates what you're doing. And so, you know, how does, how do I, I, I struggle with how I kind of perceive you as a person who was kind of always there, but I didn't know all this stuff about you. And that's a puzzle to me. And I don't really know what it is. And I wonder if there's something in your arc of growth that changed that made you more visible and, and open. Yeah. Um, when I, when I started, like you said, it was way back, uh, like probably even early Horsley's trash days would be about 2008 or so. And, um, it was back in the old days there, there, there wasn't still a lot of the submissions were really early. It was still mail outs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, you had to get all the addresses of all the places and get all the stamps and the self-addressed, uh, envelopes and everything and got very expensive and timely. But, uh, the good thing is the technology caught up and I, I guess that's probably why it became more visible is, is more of the submissions and stuff was online and, uh, and the venues too, that became more acceptable. I think there was a, there was a stigma at the start that it wasn't the same right. as, that as like print right. journals or, and then even if you would just mail, if it was still mail, they thought that was better than if you just sent it uh, through email. And of course that's obliterated now, mm. but um so I think that's probably more the visibility. I was always doing it, but it was just uh, through mail basically. And then when that switched, then it was about half and half for, I guess, 2009, 2011, something like that. And then after that, about 2012 and on, it really started going online, most yeah. of it. And uh, yeah. there's still some print here, like well, in Canada, there's, in there's a lot days, of university stuff, but. And back in those days, I mean, even the thought of doing anything digital was almost taboo. And yeah, don't even think about mentioning ebook, you know, or ebook yeah. alone. <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, Kindle was kind of brand new. I mean, back then, not, I wouldn't say brand new, but new enough. And, and the technology yeah. wasn't as accepted as it is now. You know, I've got 600 books on my phone, you know, that I may or may not yeah. ever read. You know, but the Gutenberg project's a pretty cool thing, you know, and and so you know I've got access to stuff that I would have never ever had, you know, and that's a cool. Yeah, that that that's 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 the, that's the thing for me too is uh, like being where I am, I'm I'm quite geographically isolated. So uh, when this opened up online as well, it, it introduced me to uh, all kinds of writers, artists, publishers, editors. Uh, graphic artists everybody that you wouldn't normally meet so like I you know artists from all over the world now and you you talk to them we've you know exchanged books and talked and you know these people follow them through podcasts like yours of course and you know you you get to know these people and uh, you'd never have a chance to do that with the old system the way it was so I, I guess that's probably much more visibility certainly for a writing community Right. Is that uh, the the people have access to each other now, no matter where you are, like, you know, friends over in Britain, but we can sit here now. Right. Well, and, and I we, know, we really Randy, couldn't do that. You, I mean, we've kind of walked down that path in your career, too. I've been kind of next to you as you kind of go through mm-hmm. as well. 
And I remember Fran when she was extremely resistant to even putting anything online, even, you know, so, I mean, what do you think about all this? I think the dead tree press died hard, you know, but I also think, I mean, my, my resistance wasn't a snobbery about technology. It was more, you know, like not wanting to be visible myself, which I've just had to learn to live with that now, you know, you just are, you know, you Google me and there are like a thousand photos of me and one of Simon Armitage for some random reason, but like <laughs> it happens, you know, and eventually you just have to resign your fucking self to that fact and it's fine. And actually nobody's looking, it's there, but 90% of the time, nobody cares. They'll care about the work briefly. Um, I want to ask um, Ryan, like with regards to um, the internet and like your productivity, is it a case that the technology has finally caught up with your insane prolific energy? Or is it more that the kind of like, I don't know, like the instantaneousness of all this technology is kind of driving you to do more, do you think? Is it kind of like inspiring you and pushing well, you to work harder? Or... Yeah, it's, it's probably a bit of both. Like um, I, I, would, I would always write um, all along, but I, I was definitely not on the same amount of submissions. One, it was it was, just wasn't cost effective with the mm. old mail system. Mm. Um, but the, the submissions obviously take a lot of time, as we all know, and going through and all these things. Um, but that's part of it. That's what you got to do. And, uh, and other things like that. But uh, I was always doing the writing. But then I think when, when it changed more with the online stuff, uh, you allowed a lot more of it to become visible, just putting it out online. And you saw other people doing the same. And then that it, it kind of spurs you on as well, too, that you can see other people doing it. So, uh, you know, you just keep working hard and putting more stuff out and they put more stuff out and you kind of feed off each other. And, uh, you know, that wasn't there before. So I think that that probably just added to it as well. Yeah. That's a kind I, of perpetual know, think, motion machine, right? <laughs> Sorry, Jack. That's okay. I, I, I... <laughs> I think that tapping into that energy, like you said, is is definitely a good thing. But I wonder what your opinion might be of the downside, because I have very definitive ideas about how closed in that community became. I mean, I remember yeah. those early days, too, and stupid poetic politics and mm-hmm. Facebook fights and magazines closing down and everybody acting like a bitch half the time, you know, over their ego yeah. and and. Yeah nobody was really qualified to have that position or take that stance really. I mean, very few, you know? Yeah. And so, but I think that that's rolled into my ultimate theory about the podcast and everything social yet distance is that we built a very tight knit close community, but we've limited ourselves because our work doesn't get out to anybody, but those people because nobody's promoting it anywhere else. Obviously, you're a little bit different than that, because when I do an Amazon search for your name, look at what happens. So I yeah. see you're probably doing something differently. You know, um, you know, some of those other prolific people, you you might find one out of every 10 books they write on Amazon, you know, or so you're doing something different. I'm curious if you've tapped into what that is or how you feel about that closed in community view that I'm taking yeah well it was definitely like that at the start um for sure like there was it was kind of weird because when the the old press system was dying uh it it was like everybody got excited and then they formed their own new clique and just became the old system again and tried to close people out and 
and then you had counter arguments and counter cliques and ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I mean, it still goes on, of course, to sure. a degree, but it, it was worse. Uh, it's quiet early on. It, it, yeah, and uh, uh, with the 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 Amazon thing, it, it's funny. You kind of you 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 find weird venues like um, I have like uh, with the Huffington Post interview, right? I right. Uh, the the columnist is a friend of mine, so sure. Uh, sure. We we met through Horsley's Trash a long time ago, and uh, and you know that's how that came about. But I mean, there's other stuff like you you can't even imagine where you you're just doing the same thing everyone else is doing. And then you'll check in something and you'll see that somebody in the States has, uh, has your poem on a syllabus or uh, <laughs> a school play, a school play has reenacted your poem for a talent show in the States somewhere. Right. Or weird, weird things that you would never even think of. And uh, you know, that has nothing to do with me or anything. That's just uh, things that weird things that happen. And yeah, uh, it's fucking cool. It's we'll outside. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I love when that happens. I, I reached out to the teacher and I said, I said, thanks. I wish when I was growing up, I had a teacher like you. Right. Who, who was searching out these things, putting these things on syllabus and, and introducing people to poetry young. And, you know, I didn't have that. And, and I told him, keep doing that. That's great. But uh, yeah. yeah, that's outside the community, but not a lot happens. It does get pretty insular. And uh, you know, you, you look for those things where it's outside the community as well i'm laughing because based on our discussion earlier i just got a facebook notification from the place in fort walton (laughs) (laughs) that's cool gods are good today apparently (laughs) yeah i mean i i'm with you on all that a hundred percent i i think that those politic things still happen i think it's gotten a lot quieter and I, you know, I don't think I've submitted a poem anywhere in five years. And, it, and it's because I found the system itself just incredibly nonproductive. It, it, nothing that went through that system worked. And, you know, w- when I was working, like you said, the Huffington Post thing, I mean, I worked for the Good Men Project. And, you know, that's a, co- you know, that's a completely different thing. But when you say you do things to earn money, you know, that's what I'm picturing as you, you know, doing your creative stuff, but then taking a half an hour to write a, four, you know, a, a 800 word article real quick and make 40 bucks real quick because Huffington Poe or Good Men Project or somebody needs you to write a piece about this or that, you know, um, and, yeah. and, you know, and so people like that teacher or like that friend of yours at Huffington Post, that's how you build that community as well. And those people, that's kind of my point. They would buy your book if they knew it was out there. Yeah. You know? But it just doesn't, it, it usually doesn't percolate out too much right. outside of, of the writing community, right? Like we all know about each other pretty much, uh, but others don't really know that, you know? And, you know, I guess I, I don't know about the number, but it was like in America, what is it? 1% after high school, read a book or whatever yeah. year. It's not even it is, poetry, just a yes. book. Oh yeah. That's God. a book at all. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah it's just, it, when you think about that, right. It's just horrifying. So um, yeah. Yeah, when, when you get into the discussion we've had for years about the difference in the way that things are taught where she is versus here. It's like you yeah. don't. I mean, when I was in school, you just didn't learn about poetry. It was like, how no. do you, you how do you diagram a sentence and not learn about racism? You know, that's it. You know, pretty much. You know, 
and I'm in Georgia, you know, so it was quite the task. <laughs> yeah. 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 I yeah, mean, yeah I we, think... we, we, we didn't have anything like that. Like I said, no, no exposure to poetry or anything. Right. Uh, even, even through, I guess there was probably one teacher even in high school. Besides that, it wasn't really like that, but one teacher in high school would do it. And then um, I, I heard you talking on a past podcast about Dante or whatever. And mm -hmm. I, I know at, at the end of high school, I got into Dante. So I did a, a presentation on Dante's Inferno for the class mm -hmm. or whatever. And, uh, but it was funny because I couldn't get the book at the school. And she warned me <laughs> yeah. about this. She's like, she's like, this is more university type. If we don't have that book so I had to go get it somewhere else and uh, I, I just really enjoyed the the idea of Dante how he set it all up plus all the ego of putting the Pope in hell I mean that was that was kind of ballsy but uh, you know uh, I, I just love that yeah at that time but uh, yeah we didn't we didn't really have anything like that and and poetry was just not taught at all there was no exposure I, I guess know, is it different, different I started in digging into reading too. And I, I wasn't learning anything like that at school. And when I started reading, you know, I picked up things like Herman Hess and Dostoevsky and yeah. Sartre and, you know, just this, geez, no wonder my head exploded when I was like 12 years old, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm reading this stuff and actually understanding it and wonder why I'm bored at school later, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, we get, you know, over here, you get the literature, but you also get the hidden curriculum that tells working class kids that this is not for you, you know, so although we had, you know, it's there, and it was presented to us, but I was never one of the kids who was asked to, you know, join the poetry school to join the society, you know, we're given like physical activities to knacker us out so we don't start trouble. That's what you can do. You can do gym <laughs> or you can do fucking football or you can go, you can do track, you can't do poetry it's not for you fuck off and so you know you have but we were lucky I mean back in those days you know you could go to the library and if you were determined enough and you had like a, a kind of badass mother like I had who was kind of you know sort of radical feminist communist be like we're going to the library because you know education is your birthright and your inheritance as a working class person so that was great I mean you can't for kids now in England the Tories have closed all the libraries so we can't do that anymore uh -huh. um there's not that option doesn't exist now you get what you're given at school and they just made you know poetry optional at GCSE level so kids now have a choice not to encounter any poetry at all and because they're told that it's boring and because they make the teaching of poetry boring it it sucks the life out of it so there's a whole generation of kids who think poetry isn't for them and it's sad it's so sad yep yeah, Sorry, well, I just hope, you know, I just hope no. that this, this, this altruistic mission that I consider myself to be on of spreading the gospel of poetry actually has some impact because, you know, and, and like I've said on several of the podcasts, you know, there's this girl named Mary Sue who lives in Birmingham, Alabama somewhere. And, you know, she doesn't really know that there's a line in, in, in Ryan Quinn Flanagan's poem that could change her life. And she might not ever know that that book exists because we're not doing our job and preaching that gospel. And, and we do it because we're comfy cozy in our little community that ultimately there might be spats, but they're not going to, we're going to back each other up in the end. And as long as we're sticking pure to whatever this invisible ideal is that we cater to. And, and, and I just think it's our responsibility to carry that message a little bit further and expose somebody who might 
you know, whether it's in the UK or whether it's here as, you know, some sort of political tool or just an education, it doesn't really matter. If you don't know it's there, you don't, you don't get that chance. And I, I think that's what's important really to me. For sure. Uh, I know, I know where, where I grew up, it was a, it was a, a total jock town, like not just in the high school system. Um, but everything was, of course it's Canada. So hockey was one, but foot, football was the, the main one for the school. But um, some of our teachers were even coaches on the hockey team with corporate sponsorship and they would bring over players from Russia and they had uh, what we called them puck bunnies to do their homework for them. Wow. So that they, so they could keep their grades up and they could get into the OHL and have a chance at the NHL and the whole farm system was there. That's what the school was. Right. And uh, so certainly no poetry, as you can tell, it was just sports like Fran was saying. And uh, if you didn't do that, then, you know, certainly I had the one teacher where I, where I came across uh, WH Auden and Wilfred Owen's work and I absolutely loved it. Um, but besides that, we had no poetry class, no introduction to it. Of course it, you're told it's boring mm. and we even had a, a three-tier system in the high school at the time that you you could go through the advanced system uh or the general education or the kids they decided in first year that went through basic and they would stick you in shop to work on cars right yeah. and and then you didn't even take english classes in general and they would just they would just do your tier system and churn them right out of the school like that with the farm system for the sports <clears throat> and that's that's how it was set up so Back to the mines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Stay in your lane, Prol. Yeah. <laughs> Inhouse by Ryan Quinn Flanagan. The girls Sophia recruited all came from Eastern Europe in search of work or a man who would pay them not to work. That was the idea. Get the man to fall in love with you and make things legal. Sophia was not her real name. The girls trusted Sophia because she was a woman. Once they were brought over, their paperwork and a few belongings were taken away. They were kept in one of many hen houses across the city and given a new name, like Sophia's. A working name and a new wardrobe and a steady stream of clients. And once they were in rotation, they never saw Sophia again. They lived 15 to a house and operated at all hours. The men's with the guns never talked to them. They took the money and made sure everyone worked. There was a rumor among the girls that you could buy your freedom with enough tricks. No one had ever seen it happen, but that was the hope. And the police that ever came were there for the services. More and more girls all the time. The new ones were the most popular, but never for long. The Social Yet Distanced is sponsored by the Emotional Orphan in the form of production support. We hope that you'll continue to help us grow the show through the purchase of merchandise at Redbubble or some books or broadsides at Gum Road. You can find links on our anchor page and on all our social media. Thanks. Yep. So well, like I think you, I bet you have a poem about that somewhere, don't you, Ryan? <laughs> or at least on something. <laughs>
Oh, oh, I'm sure I do somewhere. I, I don't have one. I don't have it with me, but you I have, I have plenty of you want, buddy. We're, yeah. We're game. All right. Um, I'll read a, a few from, uh, this one's from Marathon Books. It's uh, Tripwire for the Soul. Cool. I love the name. Thanks. And my, my wife did the cover, actually. She's, she's very talented with that. Mm. So I did not know that, but I was going to ask because it is quite attractive. And uh, we'll yeah. make sure that that's quite prominent in all of our further promotions. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. She's very talented with uh, creative stuff like that, which I'm not. So <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Uh, uh, first one I'll read is called uh, Jolly Rancher. Um, it's not, a, I, I, you guys probably remember the candy Jolly Rancher or whatever, but uh, it's not about that. It's actually old rancher, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I guess all his ranch hands were working out. Seasonal hires from the city. Paid as well as one can hope, surrounded by desolate fields and the ever-present smell of manure. At this dude ranch with a name no one could remember. Even some of the older ones that had spent many seasons there. But the rancher made this stew. His wife had taught him how to cook a little before her demise. Laid to rest in the family plot in back. With the child she died giving birth to. A boy named William. This jolly rancher taking everything in stride. Grabbing his guitar each night so he could sit by the grave and play his wife's favorite songs. Then up at Adam again. Cracking jokes before first light. A couple boiling pots of coffee every bit as farm strong as all the young men who gathered around with cup in hand. I really like that, you know, and I was just sitting here listening and Fran, I want you to check me on this one. But, you know, a lot of people write from the perspective when, when they read, it sounds like they're reading with their own voice internally. Yeah. And I was listening to you read that and it sounds like more like you're an observer, just given mm -hmm. one line sentences of what just happened. And it's like they pair together with a detail, pair together in a detail. I just, yeah. I, I noticed that rhythm there and, and looking at some of your other work, it's kind of the same. It's like an external voice talking, describing something as opposed to me saying something out there, you know, putting something mm -hmm. out there. I don't know. Yeah, that, 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 that's often what I see is it's like a, kind of like a detached, um, voice from from outside like you said an external thing I, I don't really internalize it too much or there, there's not a lot of over emotion right uh in it like there are certain emotional things or personal mm -hmm. things but the the voice itself doesn't really say it uh it just kind of come at it from a a more external way that's that's the that's way it I, exactly yeah. you, the voice mm -hmm. doesn't say it but you feel it you know it's there yeah 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 yeah, yeah it's think, very I was just going to say that I think that it's it's extremely attentive um, and observational to the other. There's a kind of observational intensity to it. Like you've really looked at things and you've really yeah. kind of like you, you've really nailed down the thing that's in front of you and the thing that you And I was thinking about, you know, how rare that is in contemporary poetry, particularly contemporary lyric, which is super ego invested, like hugely. Yeah. Um, and I kind of wonder how much like if this is a style that is kind of like natural and native to you or is it something that you've kind of worked at it's in more kind of like self-conscious almost like a kind of political gesture like against that sort of horrible <laughs> ego-driven lyric eye you know? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Jack, I was, uh, it's a bit of both. Um, I like, I, I was aware of, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was aware of that type of voice, uh, when doing it, but I wasn't doing any conscious thing really against it. It is, this is the, the way I naturally talk. So that's kind of the way I go at it. And uh, you're totally right about observation when when writing about anything like uh, like if it's a it could be a poem about a toilet brush but you're going to sit there and analyze the toilet brush yeah. and and find the smallest details on it and and really it's not about any ego or any personal voice thing it's just about catch capturing details and um, maybe some other side observations in it as well but it's never really uh, personal right it's just observational highly observational actually mm. but uh, that, that's the way I approach it. Yeah. It's like the periphery is there, but you've really honed in on the detail part and it's just kind of that part flows out. And you, I feel like there's an atmosphere around all the words, you know, that's, yeah. And that's that observational quality. I think that you're, you guys are call, calling it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it's always necessary to like, sometimes you can, but I don't think it's right. always necessary right. to point out all the atmosphere or all the things right like you should let your readership or people read into things they want to or see or not see because you know it is it is a give and take regardless of right. what people think right. right it's not it's not just meant to be a soapbox mm. so uh you know so you kind of leave some of that atmosphere there and people can interpret what they want uh, or not you know <laughs> but uh, that that's kind of how i approach it yeah, I I was talking to somebody yesterday about um my my the the status of my current writing and that's the thing is it's like I'm stuck in this one voice and I'm aware that I need to be out of it and I'm trying you know to do that, um, but it's become monotonous and it hurts my ears you know <laughs> seriously I mean to a certain degree it's like no dude you've grown past this and. You know, and I'm still in my head, I'm struggling with the idea of metaphor, you know, how do I say this without actually saying it, you know. <laughs> These are tough questions, though, that you have to deal with when you're when you're writing, right? You got to consider the voice. Uh, I, I found one that was helpful was to uh, to animate objects mm -hmm. that, that don't have, uh, you know, that aren't really living. So like I could I'll do I'll do it from the view of a toilet brush then. <laughs> right and then that way that way the voice has to be somewhat different because i don't have the voice of a toilet brush you know i'll just pick a, some inanimate object and try to give it life or give it its own backstory right. but then you know even if it's your own voice to a degree it has to be different just because it's so far removed from you right and then right. that i use that tactic a bit for when you get stuck like that um Besides that, I don't know many other tactics, but it, it, these are things that every writer has to deal with. You have to consider. See, I mean, you say that and I have this vision of like um, mega, mega brush, you know, dressed as Superman <laughs> going from toilet to toilet. You know, I've got this whole backstory <laughs> going on in my head. It's like, wait a minute, dude. How come you can't capture that shit when you're trying to write? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so funny. It's hard now though, right? I mean, I think, you know, thinking about what you were saying about, you know, sort of attending to, to the world and thinking yourself into inanimate objects or sort of other kind of just subject positions. I think that because we've all been trapped, I mean, you were speaking about already being isolated, you're kind of isolated geographically and we're mm -hmm. all kind of isolated indoors. And it's, 
I think, you know, Jack, we live in our own heads, right, as well. And yeah. so you're you're trapped in there and you, the voice that comes out on the page is often a version of the voice that is just cycling around in your head all day. Exactly. And it, it, it's extremely difficult to break away from that. And yeah. it's also like, you know, the world is such now, it's gone to such shit that it's almost impossible to find, you know, to be able to write through it. And I don't know if you feel, Ryan, that like the answer to that problem is just to focus on the really kind of everyday things or these neglected things, if that's in some way an answer to how we even, you know, how, to, how we write politics now, because that you can approach it in, in its own language, which is super grandiose and, you know, over the top and attacking. And that, 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 that's, a, that's exactly the way that I've uh, come to see it or how I've d decided to approach it is that you just kind of have to uh, go kind of internalize again to yourself, mm -hmm. to the mundane, to the everyday, to things that aren't really spoken about. And then you can put those ideas, you can in insert those ideas into those things within the poems. But like you mm -hmm. said, it, it's a way of trying to get around the world that we're dealing with right now and the language and the yeah. barriers. And you have to find a new way to do that. But uh, that, that's definitely the way I chose is what you just described. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, was the, that, that, that was the only way forward that, that I could see, yeah. uh, for me at least. And uh, that, that's definitely the one I ran with, so. <laughs> It works. It really works. <laughs> Thank you. It works for you anyway. I think I'm, you know, I just do this one strident monologue. If you just imagine like Sinead O'Connor in mid 1990s, just yelling angrily whilst tearing up pictures of the Pope. That's, that's my poetic voice. That's the only one I've got. <laughs> yeah, it kind of describes it, Fran. You yeah. that line, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting to use that one, hadn't you? <laughs> yeah, that's my new author bio. That's all it says. Yeah. <laughs> that's the author bio. <laughs> I tenor a dog walker no more. I'm fucking O'Connor in the 90s with a picture of the Pope. <laughs> on, on repeat forever. That's it. That's all it is. Over yeah. cycle. And, I, and I clear my throat with a fucking bulldozer. <laughs> yeah. that is, that's an amazing line. That's an amazing line. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I think it gets back to what, you know, what we originally, what I was originally rambling about in that, you know, finding the audience for that voice. I mean, you know, there's a lot of effort that goes into that. And, and I feel like sometimes a lot of that effort goes wasted if the goal is anything other than to just kind of vomit it out, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I have a background where I did some sales and things like that. And one of the things that you learn is, is that you got to talk to people in a voice that they understand. And, mm -hmm. and so not everybody's going to like my stuff and they're not going to understand it and they might have to figure it out, but the next guy might read it and just, it might smack them right between the eyes. Mm -hmm. And, and it's like anything else. If, if I've been given a gift and I'm going to pass it on to the world, it's not really my business what happens to it, you know? Where I get trapped is I know the stories that incited me writing that piece. And I know the visual details and the history and everything that goes along with it. So when I read it, I read it through that lens, you know, and I relive the moments and the ideas. Well, you guys can't read it that way. It's mm -hmm. not conceivable. So, I, you know, where my area is, I need to learn how to read it as well and understand that I'm not just and I that I need to hear it in a voice other than my own, because somebody else is that's the important part. Not I, mm -hmm. I've done my part by getting it out, you know.
yeah, that that is the that is the hard part, right? Like once you once you've done it, um, like you said, it's hard to escape your voice because, of course, you're going to write it. It's your experience. It's your voice, right? And it, it's often something very personal, so it's hard to escape that. But once you put it out there, uh, most people are going to come at it from a completely different way. Mm -hmm. They don't have that experience directly. They don't know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's shared to a degree, but it can't be a complete shared experience, of course. And they'll, they'll have their own voice. And, uh, you know, like kind of when you put it online or put it out anywhere, it's just, it kind of gets a life of its own and people are mm -hmm. going to do with it what they will. That's, that's just the way it is now. Right. But uh, in my, yeah, so that, imagine... that's the hardest part with the voice is, is that once you've, once you've put it out there, your voice is kind of gone from it, except in your head, it's still not right. because it's still with you. Right. But right. Ultimately, it's none of my business what happens to it, you know? Yeah. It's just like mm -hmm. anything else, you know? <laughs> I, I, I use the example, I, I gave away my last dollar bill one time to a guy, you know? And, and you know, somebody's like, well, why would you do that? He's gonna just buy a beer with it. And I'm like, yeah, but it could be the last beer he ever drinks. Mm -hmm. it could be the beer that keeps him from overdosing on cocaine. You know, or you, I mean, it's not my business. You know, the dude needed a dollar and I had one. <laughs> you know? I got a poem too, and you guys can do whatever you want with it. You know, <laughs> I mean, it needs to be the same way for me. Yeah. And, and we're often not even the best judge of the things. Like you get too close to the work in a way. Right. I noticed, um, I noticed it through not the work itself, but um, through submissions is often say, you know, you do a certain number of poems and you'll put some poems at the start that you think, oh, well, I think they, I've read their, uh, you know, other poets here and this and that. And I think this would kind of fit best. Right. And right. then this wouldn't quite fit as well. And I'm almost always wrong. Mm -hmm. it, it always, it's always like, we'll take this poem and it's like, you know, the one at the end or this or that. I'm, I'm like, never right. The worst judge of character on that. But it goes to the, the way they see it or their voice, right? It's totally different than yours. Right. Uh, right. And, and how once you put the work out there, it's it's quite different than the way you view it. I Apparently, I view it incorrectly a lot of the time. Yeah. For, uh, <laughs> well, but, and uh, I think that just like everything else in, in my world, I have to learn to detach from that and just not care, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Just yeah. do the work and just don't care about what the outcome is going to be because it's going to be whatever it is. And and I end up pissed off or my feelings get hurt or whatever because I have some expectation that's not realistic to begin with, you know. Well, the, the, the main thing for you is that is that you get the work out, right? That's right. That's the main thing. Express yourself and get the work out. And that's your personal reward, mm -hmm. I guess. And then obviously you, you would like some reception when you put it out there, but when you do put it out there, it's, it really just goes out there now. And, well, and, uh, and you know. my goal, I mean, there's alternative motives as well, but I want the podcast to grow and I want to spread the gospel of poetry. And, and if I'm out there, I get to meet people like you and, you know, it forces my hand in those arenas where I might be weak as well. So, I mean, it's all a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that, that's one of the coolest parts for me about putting the work out there was was the feedback, but also the people that came back or that you met mm -hmm. because uh, naturally I, I'm, I'm quite introverted most of the time and uh, the, you would meet these people in a way that you never could before by putting the work out there and then they would come back and then you'd connect with their work or mm -hmm. podcasts or anything or like I, I, I know so many really cool graphic artists now, just amazing artists all over the world and I would have never met them. And they've done some cover work and some you want to do work mm -hmm. with them in future. But, uh, 
you know, these are people I would have, I'm introvert. I would have never reached out to them probably in daily life or even if I knew them, mm-hmm. but uh, social media has allowed that possibility where we can kind of open up a bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Fran? You know what I think about it, but yeah, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I totally agree. Well, totally agree with everything you're saying. Social media still gives me the kind of like, yeah, it just gives me the bullies. Um, <laughs> I'm more kind of a hiding in the basement kind of a person. But I mean, I also hate that about myself. I think my poetry, you know, I take it out. I find my most rewarding experiences are when, you know, it it goes into the world and I have to remind myself of that. And, you know, I think the nicest thing that ever happened to me at a reading was um, I read this, I read this really long poem about Belfast and about um, the troubles in Northern Ireland and you know just just living in a shitty working class area in Northern Ireland and and I read this poem and I at the end of the evening I was leaving and this great big bald skinhead guy I mean he looked like a poster boy for loyalist violence yelled at me (laughs) from down the end of the road and come charging up towards me and I really thought he was gonna like chip me and drop me in the middle of the street but he didn't he hugged me and That's he said, awesome. you know, you, you know, you, you just said what I've always felt and I didn't have words for. And it just like, and that's what happens when your poetry goes out there. And it's not like, and then I have to remind myself that it's for that guy that it exists. It doesn't exist for, you know, the snooty editors of journals who keep you hanging for like a year and a half or, you know, <laughs> I'm still on yeah. that, Jack. <laughs> like, I'm not sure, yeah, I would be yeah. too. That's the best result, though. That's the best thing right there, right? That's, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's priceless. <laughs> yeah, that was like, that was like a hug across the barricades, you know, in the middle of a street in shitty London. It was just, it, you know, it, that, that's what it's for. And it's, it, it, it shows you too that people can surprise you sometimes, like what you expected to happen and what actually happened, right? It's that there are people out there, they're, they're looking. Uh, not, a, it, it's hard to find, <laughs> though, you know. Well, and it it, it, in in these circles, it's so easy to mislead yourself. I mean, look at somebody like Scott Young. You know, his whole pers- his whole cowboy persona. All right. Well, if you were if you were to like just read about him, and not really know anything about him or know his work or what he's done in the poetry world, you know, you'd think, oh, this dude's a school teacher. He's an old country boy. You know, just a great guy. You know. Hmm. no but that dude's got tails man serious <laughs> tales, you know and and he's yeah. all about the poetry and he's all about the love and he's all i mean you know mm-hmm. yeah. you know what the guy's like i mean he's something oh, yeah. and and you know that would be the furthest thing that you might imagine you know if you just kind of see him on paper you know yep yep and and, and you know like personally i'm impacted by this guy you know not just because I've been reading his work for years, but because this is a real fucking human mm-hmm. who goes mm-hmm. to work every day with the intention of helping to save a child's life who may not stand a fucking chance if there's not somebody like him around. Mm-hmm. Yep. You don't get no better than that. There is nothing more poetry than that ever, you know? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And I would have never met him if it hadn't been you know, for this and a little bit of social media and paying attention and, you know, saying, Hey man, you don't know me, Scott, but I'm always been here, dude. You know, let's talk about your book. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and that sometimes that's, that's the greatest thing that comes out of it is those relationships, meeting people like that. You, you learn what they do, 
um, you know, as human beings and, and, you know, how, how many good human beings there are out there doing things. Right. And, uh, you know, the, again, that's a great reward out of it. Mm. Well, and, and in these times, people making use of the technology to stay connected is it sets an example as well. I mean, besides the obvious rewards, you know, yeah. the, those people on Facebook who zip past something that says, you know, live poetry event who, who would have never seen it, you know, because there's some Zoom event going on out there they never knew was there. Mm. You know, that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And it's a yeah. melding of the world. It's not a competition. you you have to talk to people in the voice they're here and if they're not if they're out there in social media and i want to spread the gospel i got to be there yeah 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 i feel like that's me told now i feel like i've been told off (laughs) no i'm your poetic pimp i take care of all that stuff you just write fran you just keep writing baby that's all i care about (laughs) I will ride your career till it's gone, baby. (laughs) But that does bring up something I like to talk about, though. I mean, I know a little bit about Fran's history, but I'd like to hear from you, too, Ryan, Mm -hmm. Um, is this idea of mentors. You know, I mean, Fran, from a writing perspective and a personal perspective, has just been more than a mentor could ever be. Um, But I know that we all have people cross our paths who... um, who made that difference in encouraging your creative talent. And I kind of, I'm always curious where that comes from. And then I'll let, then I'll let Fran talk about her mentor who is basically a God. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I found um, there was, there was no like real key mentor writing wise of it. Like there was the, uh, the one high school teacher said, you know, introduction to, uh, things that you would definitely not see. And, and he also made it cool, you know, where a lot of people don't. And, uh, but uh, like personally mentors, I've, I, I, I'm not close with my own family. I'm estranged from my own family. So uh, my, my mentors growing up were my, my grandfathers. Right. Cause I, I, I could look to them um, where I couldn't look to my own father or mother. And uh but, but they weren't, they weren't artistic. I mean, they were, one worked as a bouncer and a bus driver right, and right. didn't really, you know, do that. And the other one was a, a auxiliary police officer and a train engineer, but, uh, <clears throat> but they, they taught you how to be a man, a, pr- a proper man and, mm-hmm. you know, do things uh, the right way. And, uh, but yeah, as for writing mentors, there wasn't, there wasn't too much. It was just what you, you came across and then, um, you just try to do it yourself, I guess, in a way, right? And fumble along, and uh, eventually stumble into uh, what what would kind of be your own voice. Right. Um, and I I actually have a poem about my father, <laughs> which I guess relates kind of this. Let's do that. Uh, yeah, and, let's do that. Yeah, the the anti mentor poem. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, about my uh, my first uh, childhood dog, and. Uh, it's called Cerberus had three heads. My dog has none. <laughs> My childhood dog was a black lab called Rocky. He came from the pound and brought fleas with him. My father banished him to the backyard and I was forbidden to play with him. It's a dirty mongrel, my father would say. I won't allow the fleas. Not in this house. I won't allow it. I was allowed to watch him run, 
and jump and roll and scratch from my bedroom window. One day, Rocky dug up a red shoebox buried in the backyard and carried the chew toy he found inside around with pride. He escaped with the chew toy and neighbors were appalled as he shook it around wildly in his teeth and tried to play fetch. Some neighborhood kids obliged and that seemed to make it all worse. My father recaptured him when he got home from work, but before he could get the chew toy back, Rocky swallowed it whole. Apparently I had a brother or sister buried in a red shoebox in the backyard and my childhood dog ate it. My mother cried and my father became so enraged that he led my childhood dog out into a field one afternoon and shot it in the head. After that, I was only allowed to have goldfish and wondered just how many other brothers and sisters I had lying around. So that's, that's my anti-mentor poem. That's about as anti-mentor as you yeah. get. Wow. Wow. I would say well done on that one, boy. You nailed that one. Yeah. yeah fuck. <laughs> We're going to take a minute now to let that one set. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I'll be editing this and adding like the G the Jeopardy theme or something to carry us over till we're ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All uh, right. Job well done, my friend. It mm -hmm. works, that poem. It works well. Yeah, it does. Thank you. Yeah, it does. Um, where did that one come from? Um, it's also a tripwire for the soul. It's an okay. older poem that I put in there, but uh, it's it's poignant because it's it's the reason why I'm a cat person now. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't had a dog since since my only childhood dog. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would think yeah. I'll just I won't even comment. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah, I think anything we could add at this point would be, king, you know, trying right. You want to talk but, any about mentors? I, I actually want to, yeah, rather than doing what I, I always do, because I always talk about Roddy, and um, I might talk about Roddy in a bit, but I, I just kind of like want to um, ask Ryan about like the idea of mentorship versus um, community, because I think what we do when we don't have that kind of role model, because like I know that my family weren't artistic in any way either, I, political, yes, mad as a box of spoons, yes artistic no um and and I also had you know I had great role models in, in my grandfather and, and in my uncles but yeah not not so much apart from my mom and my immediate family um and I wonder if actually I think that that kind of informs the way that you you write because you're not copying someone else's style or somebody else isn't imposing on you you've learned how to be a human before you become a poet um maybe this is the thing I tell myself to make myself feel better <laughs> I don't know if you have any kind of views on that, whether, you know, you think that we, you kind of find your own community and you make your own sort of mentors from whatever is around you and the poetry happens elsewhere, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's the, that's the way that I, I came at it was there, there was no, similar to you, there, there was no real artistic mentors or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you, you would look for mentors in other ways. And I'd find my grandfather's, uh, another one in the family, he was ostracized from the family was my, mm -hmm. uh, my uncle Larry, and uh, he was he was known in town. He was the only homeless man in town wow. uh, where, where we grew up. So I, mm. I would see him about, and uh, I wouldn't know who it was. And then I know one time my parents almost ran him over, 
at an inter- at an intersection they slammed on the brakes and then, and then all i knew me and my little brother were in the back and my father said oh you should have run him over that was you just met your uncle larry the bum and uh wow. but uh i always looked up to him because he seemed he seemed so strange to me but he seemed so self-sufficient and he, he didn't listen to anybody and apparently like my father was telling me horror stories but it sounded cool to me right it's like mm. oh he sleeps outside he has nowhere to live and he and he just goes to the library and reads all the books and then, but he doesn't do anything. But I, fi- I, I figure that was the most artistic guy. So I always, mm-hmm. I always looked up to him, which pissed my father off, mm-hmm. of course, and uh, maybe another reason to do it. But uh, like so much so that when, when he passed away, the public library in my hometown now has a, a bench out front, a commemorative bench mm-hmm. for the reader, for the homeless man. <laughs> and it's my, Uncle Larry, it's my Uncle Larry's bench. Yes. But uh, yeah, th- that would be a, a definite mentor. And I'd, I would just see him around town. Even when I was older, I'd see him, he'd get free haircuts. Uh, people knew him around town. And, uh, and I just follow him sometimes. And I could even see uh, my wife laugh. She said, he has the Flanagan walk. I, I walk the same <laughs> as him. You could see the walk, right? That's and amazing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's, it's coming at it uh, to learn to be human in your own way. And those lessons from those mentors, and then you kind of carry it over into your art, and you find your own voice that way. But that's that's kind of how I came to it was through people like that. And and he's probably the most artistic I know. But he didn't. I, to I don't know if he did any art, but I know he just read every book in the library. So it's just I, accumulating, accumulating the knowledge there. Do you have Do you, any idea what put him in that status, like how he ended up there? Uh, from all my father would say is that he he had an argument with my um my grandfather and then he left home at 19 and he was homeless till he was about 70 or whatever uh mm-hmm. he was on the street but uh I, th- I think it was around the time the the youngest son he drowned down at the waterfront mm-hmm. there when he was nine he was he was coming home from school walking home and i guess he fell in the water didn't know how to swim and he drowned uh <clears throat> so that that kind of made a whole family dynamic. So I think that he got, he left mm-hmm. home about then. My grandmother got ECT cause she fell apart. And then because of the loss of that and, uh, and then the family kind of grew apart after that. But I, I think it, it's centered around that time, but I'm not really sure because my, right. my father doesn't like to talk about him. Of course, if he does, it's just disparagingly, but mm-hmm. uh, you know. Well, I mean, in picturing the time I'm, I'm thinking of guys that fit that picture and they were, mm-hmm. most of them were vets you know, yeah. Vietnam era vets. And so I kind of pictured that as the same time, but any kind of trauma like that makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, something just snaps and you go on your own way to get what you need, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I never actually knew my grandmother, like as she was before the ECT, cause I was, um, I was so young then. So I always knew her as the quietest person I ever met. Right. Because she, she would never say anything. She'd just sit in a room and she'd sit in a chair and, and it was no different than like wallpaper. God, because that, they, that they just shit in those they, days, man, that shit in those days was harsh, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, see, that changes like the view to a hero as far as I'm concerned. It's like, yeah. you know, she I, I guess I guess I should have brought that poem. I didn't want to bring too many cheery poems, you know, like I uh, already did the dog one and then I'll do a racer head about my uh, my <laughs> Other so yeah, turn it into a real cheery affair. <laughs> but you yeah. see, that's that's what we do with that stuff, isn't it? You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got to deal with it somehow, right? And 
the best the best way you can. Well, I don't know if I agree best way. with that, but yeah, you're supposed to. <laughs> yeah. Well, they turn it into art at least, or, or try to express it in Something, some way, right? Yeah. Probably just to deal with it. But my my family doesn't believe in that. They they believe in the old school. You know, the British just uh, bottle it all up. Uh, don't deal with anything ever. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah, the yeah. only thing about my suburban upbringing was you, you, on the other side of that, you add, make sure it looks perfect to the rest of the world. And, you know, if you add that on the end, then you've done your job, you know? Yeah. Just keep the lies with the good sheen, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, see, we don't have to do that. That's one problem the working class don't have, you know. It's oh, like, know. Yeah, just just let it all hang out. Just just scream and like, you know, everybody knows your problems because you're bellowing at one another in the middle of the street, you know, or at a funeral or at a wedding or at a wake, you know. That's you're all yeah. screaming James Joyce at each other because you learned it in school. <laughs> 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 just some choose passages from fucking Ulysses. Yeah, that's how we. That's how we do. It's exactly that, that, what that, it was like. Yes. That's, 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 that's one. That's one that, that's one that always gets me about James Joyce too. Is that uh, that he's you know the beloved son of Ireland now, and it's like yeah, most of his writing life he was you know kicked out and banned, books banned, and <laughs> yeah, right. couldn't couldn't live in Ireland, and he was a, just a naughty boy, and and now he's most, just a patron saint. Most of um most of uh, of of any of that that kind of like set of writers. Um, you know, Sean O'Casey now, I mean, I went to the um, Abbey Theatre last time I was over and um, we watched a production of The Plough on the Stars when The Plough on the Stars was first performed there. Um, our beloved Republican brothers tried to tried to burn the theatre down <laughs> and now they're selling his book in the Sinn Féin bookshop. You know, it's, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the level of recuperation. And you have to remind yourself that this happens. And so whenever, you know, you're feeling bad about being blacklisted or, you know, you're bumped from something because somebody just found out you're a fucking communist, you're like, well, you know, well, nobody tried to set fire to me. So. <laughs> and in, in time, you know, you're going to be on the right side of history. It'll find you'll kind of rise above, you know. Yeah, yeah, long on. enough. You'll I'm, endure, I'm, you know. I'm still hung yeah. up on the Sinn Fein bookstore part. That's what <laughs> is that a it's real where, thing? Come it's on. That's where I get most of my books and some of my t-shirts. Yeah, I know it's a real thing. Yeah. How, how do I not know that? <laughs> my 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 grand my grandfather actually was tied to that. one of the ones that I looked up to. I, he had to leave Ireland under uh, those type of circumstances. He was a stowaway on a on a cattle boat. Oh my God. Uh, to, to come over here when he was a teenager. And that's how we started over here uh, on that side of the family. But he had to start a whole life over here alone. But I guess he, he was a stowaway because uh, uh, English soldiers had stoned, his, made him watch and they stoned his brother to death when he, his brother was six. And I guess he probably got revenge in some way that wasn't uh, looked upon too fondly by the English, I guess. And then he got in trouble. So that his parents shuffled him off to Canada on a, as a stowaway and that's how we began over here but yeah we had we had our troubles too and when i grew up you know my my family was even telling me oh no those are the heroes with the gas yeah. with, with the the ski masks on those are actually mm -hmm. that's the irish army and then i grew up tell in my own home that's what they were telling me right yeah as I mean, as the, those are the good guys <laughs> i mean comparatively yes yeah. <laughs> you know comparatively and this is the thing i mean you know Nobody's exactly king in that situation, particularly not, you know, in the 80s and 90s yeah. when we were growing up. But like, I mean, compared to a, an occupying force that, you know, just, 
I, I have feels about this. I have deep, deep feels about English occupation of Ireland and I get very excised about it still because it's still going on. And I mean, you know, our delightful Tory government in this country has just totally fucked Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement right in the gallbladder. So thank you for that because they still don't give a shit about you. They really want to hold on to Northern Ireland. They're desperate to hold on to it, but they don't actually give a shit about any of the people that live there. It's amazing. It's like, well, we, we're, not, we're not responsible. We'll just possess it. It's yep. possessing it for the sake of possessing it, and it's yep. it's tired and it's old, and yeah. And that's that's the one education I had from my family, especially my my grandparents, was uh, you know uh, don't don't trust the English. <laughs> was, uh, I think, I think that's a good thing. good advice <laughs> to somebody that's married an English person. That's, that's a very good advice. <laughs> I've lived here a long time now, and I still don't feel quite you know. This is like slightly slightly wary. I married a Scot, so we got oh. the, the cousin. So, you know, she's the, her, her family was split. So uh, they, they had, uh, her grandfather's a nationalist mm -hmm. and her grandmother had all the, uh, the Royal China. They'd have all kinds of fights. Uh, you know, you had the Scottish hardline Scottish nationalists out in the living room mm -hmm. and then she'd be getting out the, the English China and nobody can touch this. And it, 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 here's the queen's stuff, you yeah. know, and, <laughs> it does something to you, right? I think as a child that you you absorb all this and you feel that you feel very strangely conflicted and very confused about the world. Yep. I think yeah. that um, treating one of those china plates as a frisbee will help to alleviate that early on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Oh you know, I, I sit here and I listen to you guys talk and I find myself somewhat jealous because I don't, A, know my history that well, and B, it's certainly not as romantic and entertaining as what you guys are talking about. <laughs> and, and, and all I know is I'm just the American guy who wears a kilt all the time, you know? That's all I know. And I still, all the I still can't create a history. I just still can't do it. <laughs> don't don't be surprised ryan if you hear me telling a tale on the podcast one day about my grandfather who was a stowaway on a cow on a cattle ship <laughs> Learn, learned history yeah exactly collage just just steal it from every bits from everybody and make a tapestry you know how that works yeah absolutely <laughs> Ryan, let's talk about the book and, and wrap things up, man. You want to read a couple rapid fire and then talk about the book and anything yeah, else sure. you want to do before we close up? Um, I'll, I'll read a couple that aren't from the book, but then I'll talk about the book, I guess. Okay. Uh, yeah, just uh, uh, this. Here's one I wrote recently. It's called uh, The Basement is Flooding Someone Build an Ark. No need to be religious if you are wet. The basement is flooding, someone build an ark. One cat and no rhino to speak of, no worry. The guidelines are rather lax these days, almost non-existent. First the spring thaw and now this. Naked feet submerged in softening slap-slap carpet. Old hairballs pasted down like found art installations that cost you your one good testicle to view. Some whiskered old docent with sardine breath, pointing the way like a forgotten street sign in a municipal boneyard. Skin so wrinkled and worn that you think of Egyptian mummies, that musty curl of old papyrus spelunking into new lungs. No author has lived to adequately capture the modern drowning, 
Jules Verne would not go near the water without a submarine and a future first, which may make him smart, but that doesn't help the bark off the tree when you find yourself ankle deep in the wet stuff and looking to move your few remaining valuables to higher ground. Nice. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. That's so good. Um, I'll read one called uh, Pitchfork. Don't just lean there against the wall like a man out of work. Four tines like lazy cigarette limbs on the long drag. And the bricks behind you are littered with old band posters that have gone through over two dozen name changes and thrice as many incarnations. Everyone quitting and joining and quitting again, like an unfocused game of musical chairs. Hauling hawk shop gear around in the backs of rented panel vans, while this single pitchfork slow plays our shared desperate languish from stoop to hilt. Snapped in half, two thirds the way up the handle, so that I think of bulbous, lamp-lit strangers sitting down to break bread. Yes, sir. And uh, I guess the last one I'll read is called uh, Public Defender. Mm. No one should defend the public. Have you seen that cheesy fondue mess? And here comes Mr. Briefcase with twice as much shoe polish as sense, wishing he still had his cheat sheet from passing the bar. And the judge looks like an inflamed prostate in robes, something the New Ager warlocks would wear to a sacred colonoscopy. Some angry little gremlin thing slamming his gavel down onto the spinning head of magnetic north. And I think of cadavers donated to science as though the beakers were not enough. How H.H. Holmes polished up the skeletons of his victims and sold them back to the bone people. Something to scare the kitties that can't stop looking under their beds for the monsters they will eventually become. I like that one. That, that's a brilliant, that's a fantastic King poem right there. Thank As you. As the son of an attorney, like you really sucked me in at the beginning and then <laughs> I was somewhat gratified by the fact it didn't stay on the attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Nice okay. piece, man. Nice. Piece. Thank you. So we know the book's on Amazon, and I'll post a link for that. Any any other um, projects that you're involved in right this minute that we should be aware of, or any other books that you need to get rid um, of excess inventory or anything like that? <laughs> um, there, there are projects. Uh, they're, they're not out yet. Um, um, doing one with, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Adrian Manning. Uh, concrete, concrete meat press. So doing a, I have a chat book coming out with uh, him called Orphan Dancer. Um, there's a book called Minotaur Snow should be out soon with uh, New York Quarterly books. Cool. And uh, they're doing... really quality publication, aren't they? I really. Oh yeah, like yeah, they, they do really good work. And mm -hmm. um, also doing a, an animated book with a super talented mm -hmm. Swedish artist, uh, Jan Carlson.